Okay, a couple different hands. How many of you would normally have a cup of coffee just every morning as you start your day? Okay, a few more hands that way. Usually I don't have coffee on mornings before I preach because I don't want to preach for an hour and a half or so, and I'm sure you guys appreciate that as well. Um, about a year, year and a half ago, um, I don't want to say I converted to coffee, but I started drinking coffee instead of energy drinks and pop and things like that. And at first, for years, whenever I tried to drink coffee, it tasted, in my mind, like ashes. I just couldn't get over the taste of it. And then I finally had coffee that was pretty much a milkshake with like a little bit of coffee in it. And that like was enough to get me over the hump to where I started drinking coffee. And now I can pretty much drink any coffee you put in front of me. America, as the Dunkin' Donuts logo says, American runs on Dunkin', right? Um, people run on their coffee. I was looking up some statistics yesterday. 64% of American adults drink coffee every morning. So if you raise your hand, you're one of those people. If you shook your head at me, you are one of the 36% who don't drink coffee every day. Americans on average drink 400 million cups of coffee every day and 146 billion cups of coffee each year. The average American drinks 3.1 cups of coffee every day. There are 15,433 Starbucks in the United States. That's just Starbucks. And they serve an average of 500 to 750 customers every single day. Now, this last statistic is my favorite one. And I don't know who they got to admit to this. But more than half of all coffee consumers would rather skip their morning shower than skip their first cup of coffee. I'm hoping that's not you this morning, okay? <laughs> I don't know who they got to admit to that, but I thought that was an interesting statistic. I don't know how you are when you haven't had your coffee to start your day. There's some people where they could have caffeine, they could not have caffeine. It really doesn't affect them too much. There's other people that if they don't have their coffee by 9 a.m., then you'd better get out of their way because they are not pleasant people to be around or they're just going to sleep all day. Um, people can build a dependency on caffeine, right? If you have it every day, and I don't care who you are, if you have the same thing every day and then you skip it or you don't have it one day, there's going to be some effects to that. Sometimes if I've not had caffeine all day, I can get a headache, like a caffeine headache. I'm sure some of you have experienced that. As I think about even coffee in this silly little illustration, the goal of my sermon is to not get us to give up drinking coffee by far, but I want us to think about what things are we dependent on in life. There's a lot of people that would say coffee or whatever caffeine that is that you are um, dependent on. What other things are you dependent on in life? Uh, if you've ever had your car break down, you realize how dependent on your car you are, right? Um, if you've ever had your AC go out in the middle of the night or something like that, you realize how dependent you are on the air and heat in your house. What things are you dependent on? As we've been studying the book of Micah, we know that Micah's name means who is like Yahweh or who is like the Lord. And in the book of Micah, we've seen different attributes of God, his love and his justice, his wrath and his mercy, his 
faithfulness, and his holiness. We've seen all of these as we've studied throughout the book of Micah, interwoven within the chapters, and we've seen that there really is no one like our God. What we see in our text this morning is that God protects his people. God protects his people, and in turn, his people are dependent on him. God protects his people. He protects them from harm. That's pretty straightforward as you read this text. But yet all of God's people depend on him. And God, as we know, is a jealous God. We see that throughout scripture. He's the only one that we can really say has a right to be jealous. And God wants us to be dependent on him and him alone. God doesn't want us to be dependent on anything else. What God wants us to see and what I think we should see in this text this morning is that God wants us to acknowledge our dependence on him. God wants us to realize that we are useless, that we're powerless in and of our own strength, that we should be totally dependent on him. I said this a couple weeks ago. Every kid, as they're playing Superman and Batman and heroes and villains, every kid either wants to be the hero or they want to be the villain No one wants to be the person being saved. No one wants to admit that they need help, right? No one wants to be what you might call the damsel in distress or the person who needs saving. Yet God calls us to acknowledge our dependence on him. So that brings up the question, when does God want us to acknowledge our dependence on him? We see two different times in this text. First of all, when we enjoy success, God wants us to acknowledge our dependence on him when we enjoy success. Look at verses 7 through 9 with me. Verse 7, then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord. We've seen this name, maybe it's translated differently in your Bible, but in my Bible it says the remnant. We've seen this name come up time and time again in the book of Micah. It means the leftovers or the portion that's left. We know that Israel was a nation. They were taken into captivity. There was only a portion of them left after that. The rest of the nation was killed. They intermarried and they weren't part of Israel anymore. But this part of the nation that's left is called the remnant. And God has special promises that he's given the remnant, right? The remnant is talked about in the prophets, both the major and minor prophets. There's special things given to this people called the remnants. And so it's mentioned throughout even the book of Micah that God hasn't abandoned Israel, that he has a plan for Israel and for this group of people left behind. He calls it the remnant of Jacob. We know that Jacob is another name for Israel. And this passage tells us about God's protection on the remnants. Now, one of the things I want to bring up as we study this, if you've been reading the book of Micah, maybe you, like I, have struggled with trying to decide how does the church, how do we as believers play into what Micah and God are saying? We know that the church hasn't replaced Israel, right? That they're separate entities. The church isn't the new Israel, Okay, but yet there are certain things, there are certain promises given to Israel that we get to experience as well. I believe the new covenant, God's spiritual change in our hearts, his spiritual change through the gospel, 
we get to experience as believers, right? What parts of this do we get to experience? We know that we'll be part of the kingdom, part of the millennial kingdom of God. And so as we see this remnant, I want us to realize that there are physical and there are personal promises given to Israel that are for the nation of Israel. But we as believers will get to enjoy some of these as well. That doesn't mean we've replaced Israel. That doesn't mean we are the new Israel. It's just part of how God is working throughout time. Now, the promises that I think God is specifically keeping, talking about referencing here, are found in Genesis chapter 12. And I want you to jump there with me. Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we see the beginning, right? Creation, fall, we see the Tower of Babel, Noah's Ark, all these different stories that are pretty foundational for just how you understand life, right? In Genesis 1 through 11. Then in Genesis 12, there's a new character introduced to the scene. That person is Abram, whose name would later be changed to Abraham. And there's a promise given right at the beginning of Genesis 12. Look at verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your father's country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you. So God's making a promise to Abram. It's really an unconditional promise, even though, as I've had one friend point out, Abraham still had to go, and he does. Verse 2, And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Okay, so that's part of God's promise. God's going to bless Abraham. He's going to multiply his offspring. He's going to make him a great nation. We've seen that in Israel's history. We're going to continue to see that in Israel's history. But I want you to notice that last phrase with me. So that you will be a blessing. Part of God's promise to Abraham and to Israel is that it's through Israel that the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we're going to see that in our passage in just a moment. Keep reading. I will bless those who bless you. I will dishonor those who dishonor you. I will curse those who dishonor you. I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, in you and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We see this specifically play out here in Micah chapter 5. If you want to jump back there with me. First of all, in two different illustrations that Micah uses. The first is Micah, the Lord through Micah who's writing, comparing Israel to the dew. He starts comparing Israel to the dew. And he talks about how the nations are going to be blessed through Israel. He says, The remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people. What does it mean to be in the midst of something? Well, I think of like you're at the mall and there's all those people that come. Obviously not during COVID, but when life is normal, there's a ton of people at the mall, right? And have you ever lost the person who you went with and you're trying to find them and there's just all these different people and you can't tell anyone else apart? Hopefully that's not your kids or anything, but <clears throat> I think of that as the midst. Israel is one of many nations at this time. But we also see that this is part of God's promise to Israel even after he comes back and he's establishing his kingdom. He says, The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord. What is dew? What's well, that little wet substance on the grass, right? 
Whenever I take my dog, Mac, out in the morning, there's always dew on the grass. And I always want to stand on the sidewalk where it's dry because I don't want to get my shoes and socks wet. I hate that. And he always drags me so that I have to go into the grass so that my shoes and socks have to get wet. Even after I've changed and I'm ready to go for the day, he always, and sometimes if I'm not on the grass, he'll kick the water onto me so that I get wet anyways. That's what I think of when I think of the dew. The dew could mean two things. Some people think it means a curse or a judgment from the Lord. I actually think it means a blessing. It's something that's beneficial to the grass. It's something that helps it grow. The remnant of Israel, the people of Israel will be like dew from the Lord, like showers from the grass. Okay, It's things that are blessing the rest of the nations. Then it says, which delay not for the children of man, nor wait for the children of man. So what does it mean that they're not waiting? That God is activating, he's initiating, he's fulfilling these promises within his own time, within his own plan. Okay, so that's what we see with the remnant as the dew. Through Israel, God would bless the other nations. He wasn't just focusing on Israel, but actually through all the nations, Israel would be blessed. Now, you might ask yourself, how did God do that? How did God bless the rest of the nations through Israel? The ultimate way, the most important way, is through his son, Jesus Christ. Where was Christ born? The nation of Israel. Where did Christ die on the cross? In the nation of Israel. It's through the nation of Israel that God blessed the rest of the nations. Now, there's other ways as well that we won't get into at this point right now. But we first see the nation of Israel as a blessing from the Lord. I had a teacher a couple, well, this was in high school, so several years ago now, that I didn't really see eye to eye with. She was the math teacher. How many of you are good at math? Okay, one, maybe two people total, okay? Um, We won't have any, like, math competitions for our church fellowships or anything. I was not good at math in high school, Uh, My dad is great at math and he would help me, but I still wasn't getting the content and I still just wasn't connecting with this teacher. And my dad told me to do something. He told me, I want you to go and ask her for help every day after school, even if you don't really have a question, for two or three weeks. I want you to go and ask her for help. And I thought, I do not want to do that, you know, but I did it anyways. And you know what I noticed about that teacher When I said I needed help, when I wanted to be on good terms with her, my grades started to go up in her class, even if I wasn't getting that much help anyways. Now, she did show me some things that helped my math grade, but I learned something, especially when I became a teacher last year. Teachers want to see students that want to do well, right? That's what my dad told me. He said, teachers want to see that you care about your grade. And really before that, I don't think that teacher realized that I actually did care about my math grade. Now, I didn't care about it as much as my dad did, but I wanted to see my grade improve, right? We see from the Lord that you can either be on good terms with God, you can want to follow him, you can want to obey him, and through Israel, you'll be blessed. And then we also see that if you're not on good terms with God, if you don't want to be a part of God's agenda, you're going to be cursed. And we see that in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, and the remnant 
of Jacob shall be among the nations. It starts out almost exactly the same. This remnant, it's among, it's in the midst of these many nations. But notice the illustration now. Like a lion among the beasts of a forest. These beasts refer to like livestock, oxen, you know, sheep are going to be mentioned later. What does a lion do if they're around all of those different animals? He wants to pounce. He starts getting hungry, right? Notice the second illustration he uses. That's very similar to that. Like a young lion among the flocks of sheep. Okay, if an adult lion is by beast, he's probably going to attack. But maybe he shows some self-control. But a young lion who's around sheep, he can't help himself, right? He's going to attack. He's going to lunge after these people. God starts comparing Israel to a lion. Now, it's interesting as we think about lions throughout Scripture. First of all, even outside of Scripture, the lion was a pretty popular animal with the ancient rulers. The Egyptian princes, the other ancient rulers of Assyria, even in Babylon, they all liked lions. They all wanted to be known as a lion. They all wanted to be represented by a lion in some way. They all respected lions. In Scripture, we see that lions are respected as well. In Revelation 5, Christ is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. In Daniel, he's thrown into the lion's den. Why was that so scary? Because there's some hungry lions down there, right? They're known as fierce animals. They have a loud and majestic roar. But what's scary is not necessarily their roar, but what they're about to do to you as well. One of my favorite characters just in literature is Aslan the Lion in the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Who is often cited as, well, I'll read to you what the quote says. One of the children asked the beavers who they were with. And if you've not read the story, just bear with me for a second because I'm having some nostalgia right now. One of them asked, is Aslan safe? Is this lion safe? And this lion is a picture of Christ. And the beaver says, of course he isn't safe, but he is good. That's one of my favorite lines throughout the entire series. Christ is compared to a lion throughout that story in the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, one other note, and this is just a throwaway, take it or leave it line. My dog, Mac, is a Rhodesian Ridgeback, and they are called the Lion Hunters. Apparently, they hunt lions in Africa. Now, those of you who know my dog, he would never hunt a lion. He would probably run away, but I thought that was pretty cool. So the remnant is called a lion, They are devouring, they are overcoming these nations, they're tearing them to shreds. That's described as well. It says at the end of verse 8, when it goes through, it treads down and tears into pieces, and there is none to deliver. How many of you, by show of hands, would try to rescue a gazelle or an animal you see that is being mauled by a lion? Anybody? Yeah, none of us would do that, right? Maybe if it was like a family member or someone we knew, but none of us would try to save any of those animals because we know what? They're gone because the lions are going to devour them. And this is how God compares Israel. Israel would devour the nations who were cursed by God. The nations who did not want to be on the same page as Israel, who attacked Israel, They would come like a lion and they would devour them. It's a scary thought even as we think of our nation. Do we support Israel? 
there's a pretty practical reason, even outside of the moral reasons why we should, why we should support Israel, and that's through prophecy, even that we see in Scripture. God protects his people, right? So who is doing this? How is Israel, this little nation, if you've ever seen the nation of Israel, it's just very tiny, it seems insignificant. How does Israel have the power to do this? We'll read verse 9 with me. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries. Are they lifting their own hand? No. God is lifting their hand up. He is the one that is initiating this. And all your enemies shall be cut off. God is protecting Israel. He's the one that's making them a blessing. He's the one that's making them a curse to nations. This is all through the protection and the work of God in this nation. He's the one activating all of this. It reminds me when it says that God is raising up the hand, their hand. It reminds me of when I used to coach upward basketball. I had my brother's team, my brother Quinn, who was here. Back before he was almost my height, he was in kindergarten. And I coached his upward basketball team. And Quinn hadn't made a basket all year. Now, an upward at kindergarten age, they don't keep score. They don't have referees. The coaches are the refs. And so I was running up and down the court, which that was quite the workout for me, trying to keep up with those kids. And I finally got to the end of the game, and Quinn hadn't made a basket. Nobody was really doing anything with the ball. So the ball came to me, and I gave Quinn the ball, and I picked him up, and I brought him over to the basket, and he dunked the basketball, and he got his first basket ever for upward basketball. Now, who made the basket? Well, Quinn. Could Quinn have made the basket without me picking him up and having him throw it into the basket? No, not at all. And so it reminds me even of how God is enabling Israel to have this success. So what does this teach us? First of all, that God is sovereign over success. God is sovereign over all of our success. If you've got blessings, if you have good things that have happened to you in your life, they come from the Lord. Whatever sphere of life you are in, whatever things you've done in your life, God is the cause of all of it. We secondly remember that any blessings we have come from the Lord. Any blessings you can give to others come from the Lord as well. You might think that you're a pretty nice person, that you're a generous person. All the gifts you can give others, all the generosity you have, it comes from God. God is the one who enables us to give it all. God is the one who enables us to do any good. I'm lastly reminded of this in these three verses, at least, that God keeps his promises. What did God tell Israel all the way back in Genesis 12? I'm going to make you a great nation. What is predicted in Micah chapter 5? Israel is going to be made a great nation. What are we all going to see on that last day? God's going to make Israel a great nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through them. All the nations who curse Israel will be destroyed. God is protecting Israel. He's enabling Israel during their times of success. And he does that for us as well. But I secondly want us to see that God wants us to acknowledge our dependence on him. He wants us to humbly submit to him when we deal with sin. As I was reading this passage, I was trying to understand how this all fit together. 
what the point of chapter 5 was, especially these last five or six verses. And what we really see is God purifying the nation of Israel, getting rid of their military, getting rid of their idols, getting rid of their sinful possessions. And what it reminded me of is this, that God, even as we're dealing with sin, wants us to acknowledge our dependence on him. So let's look at verse 10 together. He uses a familiar phrase. He says, in that day. What is that day? We've seen it several times come up through the book of Micah. I think it's the last day when God initiates this thousand-year millennial kingdom as he's bringing the people of God together. He also says, declares the Lord. What happens when he uses declares the Lord? It means God is speaking. It's a message. You had better listen up, right? And so what is God telling them now? He talks about, he starts explaining to them, helping them understand that he is going to rid them of their sin, of their sinful dependence on things in two specific ways. The first is by taking away their military reliance. Look at this with me in verse 10. I will cut off your horses. Now for you horse lovers in here, he's not going to kill horses, okay? He's going to cut off their dependence on horses. He says the same thing about chariots. He says, I will destroy your chariots. Israel, part of why Israel started going the wrong way was that they trusted too much in their military and their fortifications and all the power that their nation had, and they were not dependent on the Lord. There's nothing wrong with horses, but God has already told Israel in the book of Deuteronomy that it is sinful to be that dependent on your military. That you shouldn't have an abundance of horses or chariots because you'll be tempted to put your trust in them. God has just told Israel, I'm going to give you victory. You're going to have victory over the nations. You're going to be like a lion. But it's not going to be through anything they could do. They wouldn't have any need for these horses, these chariots, because... They were dependent on the Lord. Look with me at verse 11. I will cut off your cities and your strongholds. What do these refer to? Well, your military defenses, all the towers, castles, things that you've built. He's going to tear those down. They won't need them anymore. They will find their security in the Lord. Now, our military possessions, horses, chariots, Cities, strongholds, are they sins in and of themselves? Well, no, there's nothing sinful about a horse. Is it sinful to trust in these things rather than trusting in the Lord? Yes, and this was part of Israel's problem. Their military reliance. Oftentimes, some of the most difficult sins in our lives, some of the most difficult work that we have to do in trying to get rid of sin, comes from getting rid of things that are not bad in and of themselves. Think about in our world today, is money bad of itself? No, but the love of money is the root of all evil, right? Our houses, possessions, kids, relationships, are they bad in and of themselves? No, but our reliance on them, our trust in them, our dependence on them is what is sinful. Trusting in the government, trusting in laws, legislature, putting all of our eggs into those baskets, 
trying to become too dependent on them. It leads to a lack of dependence on God. You see, this is what God wants us to see in Micah. That Israel didn't need to depend on those things, that they could trust in him. That God keeps his promises, whether they have one horse or a thousand horses. Whether they had one stronghold or a thousand of them, that God keeps his promises to Israel. That they needed to be dependent on him. God wants Israel to acknowledge their dependence on him. And so notice what steps he takes. He's the one who cuts them off. He's the one who takes these things away. Israel couldn't do it on their own. They needed the Lord's help. Notice with me, secondly, the spiritual idolatry. Now, this is inherently sinful. The things that Micah describes are sinful in and of themselves. And I want us to understand that, okay? Read verse 12 with me. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you will have no more tellers of fortune. He's referring to witchcraft, fortune tellers. Look at verse 13, carved images. I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. These pillars were like cultic stones that were used for false god, false idol worship. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. We see this spiritual idolatry that was pervasive in the nation. That was dominating Israel, whether it was false idols like Baal worship, whether it was these pillars. In verse 14, he says, I will root out your Ashereth images from among you. Ashereth was a um, goddess of fertility. It's a very evil and sexual practice to worship her that Israel was having. These were things that they should not have. Sins that even the other nations knew were not right. And so what does God do? He cuts them off. These are very strong words that God is using here. They're not just like, have you ever seen a teacher or someone who's working with children, give them a threat, but you kind of realize it's an empty threat, you know? Like I'm going to put you in timeout or something, or I'm going to, you know, not let you have your snack. And you think, okay, the kid isn't really listening to that. That's not what the Lord is doing here. God is using some pretty strong language to deal with Israel. I'm going to cut off these sorceries. I'm going to root out. It has the idea of there's a tree. Have you ever had a tree that you can't get rid of? I'm going to take the root out. It goes down to the very core of the ground. God is taking these things away from Israel. Notice that God is the one who had to do these things. That Israel couldn't do this on their own. They were dependent on the Lord. These idols in their lives. These explicit evil practices. Israel struggled with idolatry throughout their entire national lives. One of the blessings actually of this time, of this kingdom, is that God would finally take all of that away. And they would hope and trust in the Lord. Look back at Micah chapter 4. We'd read this in verse 5. What's so great about the kingdom? Verse 5. For all the peoples walk in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever 
and ever. How do they find this dependence on the Lord? How do they get rid of all their idols? It's God is the one who is working in them, who is taking these things away. These cities that are destroyed at the end of verse 14, these were centers of pagan idolatry and wickedness. And God is destroying them for the good of Israel. He is the one who is ripping their dependence away from these different things. We get a final picture of vengeance in verse 15. And this answer is a pretty important question for us. In anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations who did not obey. Have you ever read the prophets, especially the minor prophets? You've thought, man, God is really hard on Israel. But what happens to all these other nations who are just as wicked, if not more wicked? Well, all of them are watching. We know from Micah 1 that God is talking to the rest of the nations who are looking in as well. And God says he's going to execute wrath on these nations. That he holds them accountable. He says, in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance. These other nations who were not obeying, they weren't getting off the hook. But God was the one who would judge them as well. Think about this this morning. When it comes to your struggle with sin, do you ever have times when you've tried to obey, where you've tried to walk in the light, where you've tried to do the right thing, but you have sins in your life that you struggle with, that you can't get rid of? You've tried different plans. You've tried different accountability partners. But for whatever reason, you can't seem to overcome that specific sin. Are you dependent on the Lord? That's why I love that song that we sang together. That we depend on the Lord and his grace. There is grace for the battle that rages within our hearts. That God calls us to obey, but he doesn't just call us to obey and leave us on our own. But it is his grace that works in each and every one of us to overcome those sins that we feel so powerless against. Israel couldn't get rid of their military reliance and he couldn't, they couldn't get rid of their idolatry. So God takes them away. God roots them out. Think about this this morning. Micah was talking about idols, wooden idols. What idols in your heart? What things are you worshiping more than God? What evil practices do you know rest in your heart that you don't get rid of because you feel powerless against them? What is the answer? It's depending on the Lord. How many times do you wake up in the morning and you pray for God's strength and you pray for his Holy Spirit to work in your heart so that you can say no to sin, so that you can flee from your sin, and so that you can run to Jesus. How do we make that decision? It is through the work of God. It is through depending on Him. Do I depend on the Lord to close my heart to these things? Do I rely on Him more than I rely on coffee or cars or money or people? Am I dependent on the Lord? Well, how can we acknowledge our dependence on him? First of all, we stop depending on other things in life. We stop looking to other things for satisfaction, for enjoyment. We identify things that we depend on more than God, and we find ways to get rid of them. 
always praying, always trusting in the Lord, depending on him. Now, I'm not saying don't drive your car to work because you want to be independent. You need to drive your car to work, okay? I work 30 minutes away, or I live 30 minutes away from the church right now. I could not just walk to work every day, all right? There are some things in life that you need, but are you dependent on them more than the Lord? Secondly, commit to his word. Like Tim said in Sunday school, it's our instruction manual. We need to read the instructions. We need to follow what God has told us. Commit to God's word. It tells us how to obey. That's what I love about scripture. Whatever new things in life that seem to be sins, all these different things that trouble people, all this wickedness that we see in the world, the problems seem new, but the answers are always the same, right? It's God's word. And God's word has the answers for all of them. Lastly, we trust his promises. We trust his promises that if God has said something in his word, he will be faithful to complete it. You know, God says there's no temptation that's overtaking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He always gives us a way of escape. In Philippians, it says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We trust that God will work in our hearts and lives and that he will complete that work to the end. But we also recognize and acknowledge that we are dependent on him. Are you dependent on the Lord today? Maybe you're here this morning and you've been trying to do it all on your own. You feel the guilt and shame of your sin, and that doesn't seem to go away, right? But you feel like you can't overcome those sinful habits. Can I encourage you to wait on the Lord, to depend on him, to acknowledge to God, I can't do it on my own, but I need your strength. I need your help. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good gifts you give to us through the gospel. God, may we be faithful to depend on you each and every day. May we be faithful to commit to your word for change and for growth. God, may we be faithful to serve you and obey you as a church. God, we need you. We need your work in our lives. God, help us to respond according to your word. In Christ's name, amen.